0: Yeah. And it, uh, while simultaneously like showing us things like reality TV shows where where, where like, you know, these pe- people are famous, but sort of exploiting themselves in order to become famous. And it's interesting to me that like fame is still so attractive when like that's what we're shown. But But also maybe I'm just viewing it through my particular like upper middle class white intellectual frame and can't see what other people who see that and want to be on reality TV shows see.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 20. I'm Jamie Berger. Tina Antolini is a Peabody Award-winning storyteller and radio producer. She serves as the host and producer of Gravy, a podcast with the Southern Foodways Alliance, which was named the James Beard Foundation's Publication of the Year for 2015. Tina has worked in public radio for more than 10 years, including on NPR's State of the Reunion, where she won a Peabody and a National Edward R. Murrow Award. When we met about a decade ago, she was working for WFCR, now known as New England Public Radio. Today is November 22, 2016. We spoke back in September. Hi, Tina.
0: Hi, can you hear me well enough? I can put headphones on that have a better mic, if that's better.
1: Um. You're, I hear you find you're a little reverb let's, let's try it. That brings up the first thing I want to talk about, actually. So go ahead and give it a try. Is that better? Uh, now Let's try. Um, let,
0: me, let me say something else to you. You can test. You know what I usually ask people when what? I'm trying to get level? What they had for breakfast?
1: Well, what did you have for breakfast?
0: I had a breakfast taco. With scrambled eggs and cheese and mm. salsa verde, it was good. Yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <can't>,
1: well, in <laughs> in an hour, uh, yeah, <laughs>
0: we
1: can both eat. Um, the reason that I I said that it, it's it's kind of perfect that you're talking about the better quality, mic. And I don't know this one. It sounded a little. Uh, I think this one's better. The one okay. the headset um, is because about an hour ago, I'm going to put myself on the spot. And then I'll put you on the spot, but you can <laughs> t- take yourself right back off it if, if you don't want to okay. uh, address it. But about an hour ago, we emailed and you ended your email by saying, ha, I'm kind of nervous. And I wrote uh-huh. back and said, me too. <laughs> well, well, I know why I'm nervous. Uh-huh. And that's because you're a professional at this. You're a radio professional, and you're a very good one. And I really like your work and your voice and, and your stories. And so thank you. And so even though I've known you for a long time, it's still uh, intimidating. <laughs> now, why are you nervous?
0: <laughs> because usually I'm the one asking the questions, that, not answering them. <laughs>
1: that's what I thought you'd say.
0: Yep. You were right about that.
1: And as hard as I looked, I didn't find anything. Uh, I found some interviews with you and stuff, but nothing with you talking about yourself yeah, yeah it doesn't
0: happen that often yeah. I, mean, I, think it's, I think it's happened like at public events where mm-hmm. there's like q and a s and people ask me, but no, generally that's not a not the thing i 'm talking about no is myself yeah no.
1: and by design and by choice right you've yeah you've, mm-hmm. you're not a confessional uh storyteller. you help other people tell theirs.
0: Yeah. As, as thus far, I have not been telling stories about myself almost ever.
1: Yeah. And, and in terms of what I'm doing, you also, you are not someone who is a celebrity interviewer. You, you interview, you talk to regular people.
0: Yeah. I'm, I've, am i I've actually kind of like deliberately avoided talking to famous people for the most part. I don't, I think they're less interesting.
1: Okay. This is great. Why?
0: Um, Well, let me refine what I said a little bit. I think it's harder to get an interesting interview out of a famous person because so often they have been doing interviews for a long time and sort of have it down to a science. They get asked the same questions all the time and it's really challenging to like get somebody out of their rut with that. And then I also am just drawn to stories that are sort of like a little closer to the, you know, to the movement of everyday life. And I think that there's a lot of drama there that um, is worth paying attention to that, you know, we don't need another person that likes to interview celebrities. There are lots of those. For me, I feel like the reason I probably wouldn't be that good at interviewing celebrities is that... Um, like I get, I would get like intimidated. I mean, I already, even just interviewing regular people, like I always have to like psych myself up before I go and do an interview because I, um, am kind of naturally a little bit shyer than I might appear. And so I think with a celebrity interview, I would be sort of cowed by them a little bit too. (laughs)
1: I thought that going into this, but as I've done it, the people who are more like the first one I did, John Hodgman made it very clear to me that it was going to be in a way much easier because he just was like, okay, let's do it. And he just did it. And I just kind of got to sit, sit back. They're adept already
0: at being interviewed
1: and he also actually gave it a lot of thought and had thoughts about fame and his own fame and just was like bang 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 and and this i was like great these are all going to be so
0: easy yeah but i feel like that's where the that's where the craft and like figuring out how to help people open up and tell their story i mean i'm way more interested in that than like how to sneak around somebody who's used to telling their story and try to pull something new and different out of them yeah You know,
1: as much as skeptics of what I'm doing would disagree, that's that's very important to me, too, because I've had various variations of people saying, so, Jamie, have you run out of famous people to talk to yet? And and I get very annoyed because it's kind of out loud saying that I'm not actually doing what I say I'm interested in doing, which is exploring fame, not having celebrity chat. And it means talking to some famous people and it means talking to some non famous people And people who've come and gone from that world. Uh, So John made it very easy for me, but I like the challenge of learning how to bring, draw people out.
0: Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's part of what keeps me doing what I do is that it never gets boring, really.
1: And (laughs) it's also funny that, you know, I've been interviewed very seldom in my life. And when you talked to me a few weeks ago, I went in totally casually, like, I'm just talking about stuff I know about, about the San Francisco Public Library. But as soon as you were holding a mic in front of me and asking me questions, I didn't know what to say.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, it didn't come across that way.
1: Well, that's good. <laughs> well, tell them, let's, why don't we tell them what it is that you were working on? It.
0: So I'm working on a story about this um, program at the San Francisco Public Library that you worked for, Jamie, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sort of allowed people to call a phone number and ask their ask questions sort of the way that we use Google now. And um, that is going to be part of a pop-up magazine live show in November. There's going to be one in Boston that I think I'm going to be a part of. That one I haven't totally confirmed.
1: I've thought about the fact that you don't seem to, you know, want desperately to talk about yourself. And so I also, you know, inherently think of you as someone more driven by the stories themselves and by making radio than by yourself being on the radio. Um, And so I guess what I'd ask you instead of how you feel about fame in terms of your own, career is what aspirations and goals do you have or is it just doing what you're doing now
0: I mean I think it's tricky it's not necessarily that like I'm completely disenchanted with the idea of myself on the radio um, because I've, I've actually had jobs where I've been more behind the scenes and I, I really, I noticed how much I missed actually like being the voice. And I think some of that is ego and like, you know, wanting people to recognize my hand in the story that I was making. But I also think some of it is just um, like that with the kinds of stories that I do, I'm writing them and so it's sort of like being able to tell them myself is um, a way of sort of seeing the artistry of a story through to its fruition, if that makes any sense. Um, so, so having had moments where I like wasn't the voice that you hear, acquainted me with like how much I that I actually do like that um, for on a number of for a number of reasons. Um, but in terms of my ambition. Yeah, I mean, I think it is more story driven than um, sort of focused on me being, I mean, I like I like being recognized as good at what I do, but I have this sort of discomfort with like that being too much of the thing that drives me because that, that feels like not solid enough, like not something that I can actually lean on in terms of my sense of my identity. It like seems so, um, you know, it's based on how many people are reacting to you instead of like, if it's about the story and the kinds of stories that I do, I can sort of be gratified by a whole bunch of other things that don't have anything to do with whether people like me, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I got to say, though, because I'm a big fan of your voice, did you struggle with not liking your voice?
0: Yeah, I, I for a long time, now, now I actually, and I it, I think it's a couple of reasons that now I actually like my voice and probably it's partially, you know, years of people telling me I had a great voice. But, um, But when I was growing up, so my voice has always been really low. And when I was growing up, uh, I got picked on mercilessly for that, uh, for being a girl with, like, a really deep voice. Um, starting when I was, like, in preschool, kids would tell me I had, like, a smoker's voice or a man's voice. And so I hated my voice. I actually, like, felt really conflicted about it. Um, even though I also, like, grew up singing. My dad's a choral conductor, so I grew up singing. And, like, it's not like I I wouldn't – I was, like, shy to use it. It's just I felt like it was not an asset And then when I was 15, I um, was going through my dad's record collection, and I found this record um, by Nina Simone. It was her live at the Newport Jazz Festival in, like, 1960 or something like that. And I don't know what made me put it on, but I put it on, and, you know, if you've heard Nina Simone's music, here's this woman who has, like, this very deep contralto voice that she, like, is unafraid to have be very forceful, at certain moments and very tender at other moments. And like, I just got a sense of it as like, oh, this is this instrument that is not like something that she is ashamed of at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, yeah, it gave me this sense that like, oh, I, I could do something with this that is like unique and that's a good thing instead of like the fact that it doesn't blend in being a bad thing.
1: I know and adore Nina Simone's voice. So, that just kept you singing?
0: Yeah, that kept me singing in it. And it also just gave me a different relationship with my voice. Like I started thinking about it as something special instead of something that I wish was like a little bit more like everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got for my first job, uh, in radio when I was 15 at a, um, little local commercial classical radio station in, in mid coast Maine where I grew up. And, uh, it, Pretty immediately, they were like, "You have a great voice. You should be on the radio." And had me recording the overnights um, for them. So, like, if you listened to my dad, actually used to joke about this, that he would like be driving home from work late at night and would turn on the radio, and there would his teenage daughter be, you know, announcing like Mozart symphony, whatever. Um, and and you know, I wasn't actually awake. Record. I w- I'd pre-recorded them. So from that point on, it was like a gradual. Mm, just becoming comfortable with my voice and like um, appreciating it.
1: Could you do an impression of that, Tina? (laughs)
0: Um, You're listening to the classical wave.
1: Nice. Were you in love with radio right then?
0: No. So I mentioned my dad is a choral conductor and he was going to this classical radio station to record um, like, an announcement about an upcoming concert and brought me along just because he thought I would find it interesting. And I hit it off with the engineer that was recording it, and they offered me, like, an after-school internship. So my, my, actually, my after-school job all through high school was working first at that radio station and then at another commercial radio station. And all along, I just thought it was, like, a pretty cool after-school job. I, I didn't really have an ambition to work in radio um, for my career, And in fact, really didn't until I was like most of the way through college and um, had actually been, I'd wanted to be a singer.
1: Dude, I don't know if you remember, but I've seen you sing.
0: Have you? I don't remember that.
1: (laughs) At the rendezvous or somewhere else you can. With Rusty Bell, maybe
0: at the rendezvous?
1: I don't know, but you sang blues with someone and it was lovely, but it's all very vague in the memory.
0: Yeah. So for a little while that's what I thought I wanted to do and then when I was sort of partway through college I realized that um that I was enjoying singing less because I was trying to make it my everything like have it make money for me and also it just I think I also struggled with like feeling like I needed to sell this like hyper personal thing that I was doing that didn't feel great to me, so then I started to try to figure out like okay what can I do that still has like involvement with music but isn't singing and I looped back around to radio because um, I'd started making i I decided I was going to make documentaries about music um, and instead of uh, I mean I was studying it academically like ethnomusicology and instead of writing long papers, it occurred to me that radio was like a way I could present this information about musical communities to the public. And that's when um, the radio thing sort of came back around and I realized, oh, like this is something that I could do um, for my career. So it's kind of funny that it took me years of working in radio to realize that I wanted to do radio for my living, but it did.
1: That's great. It's kind of the converse for me. I've always loved and listened to people talking on the radio and never thought about doing it. Uh Um,
0: so what what made you decide to do it
1: (laughs) dan oppenheimer asked me this a few episodes ago i just realized that i could and then i realized i had a topic to at least bounce off and then you know i haven't launched a creative project in many a year and i just thought this what the heck i want to before i forget it you were talking back there about leaving music and trying to to present this, to sell this hyper personal stuff you were making. And that's where the, the weirdness of fame comes in. And I think of great artistic friends who walk away because they're not willing to do that. And people who are somewhat, there are always some brilliant people who either are willing to do it or someone will find them and be like, I will be the one who deals with the fame stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, I think for me, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't want the world to hear it. Um, It was more that like, I found the process of trying to get the world to hear it agonizing. And like, you know, because of the personal nature of making music for me, it felt like too much of myself was at stake. And that if it wasn't going well, I was going to be too um, torn down by that.
1: Mhm yeah yeah absolutely that's that's i may i wasn't articulating it well but that's what i mean
0: whereas oddly for radio like pursuing radio stories maybe it's because i'm like doing stories about other people and not myself i didn't have any you know hesitation about that you know that side of things it it just doesn't feel as um like the same part of me is on the line with it
1: yeah it's like you're an you're you're an agent for that story, as opposed to it being selling you.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say, like, I get actually like this all came up for me again when we were launching Gravy because um, you know, as opposed to doing stories for other public radio shows, which is what I've been doing for like a decade, Gravy was like my baby. It was my idea that I'd sort of brought to the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is my partner in the podcast. Um, and so you know, they're, it was a collaboration with them, but like, I'd been nursing this little idea and then I was the host and I was shaping all of the episodes and it really felt like, okay, I'm like throwing myself off this cliff. And if like, people don't like this and it fails, like that's really putting myself on the line. And like, I'll have to pick my, pick up the pieces of myself if that goes wrong. Um, it really did feel like that was you know, hanging in the balance to some degree. Well,
1: how does the pretty much, I guess, all you could ask for a success of it feel? I don't <laughs> know. That's the way it feels to me. Maybe you could ask for more, but at this point, you won two two James I mean, two James Beard Awards.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's gone pretty well. <laughs> it's gone pretty well. Uh, I mean, one can always imagine, especially as like a hyper perfectionistic ambitious person, like one can always imagine greater success. And I think that's actually like this experience has made me realize, um, you know, how much I don't want quote unquote success to be the thing I'm driving towards or the thing that motivates me because it's sort of like, uh, a very hungry animal that the more you feed it, the more it wants. Um, but that said, it also is so gratifying to have a thing that you, Um, had daydreamed about happening uh, actually happen and to have something that is very personal be received so warmly by complete strangers. I mean, that is super validating and uh, I don't mean to diminish that by saying that it also isn't everything and um, you can come off of like the sort of honeymoon afterglow of winning a big award like that and realize that, like, oh, you know, I'm still me. I still need to do all of these things that I'm signed up to do. And, um, ultimately I need a better reason for doing them than just, which, which I'd always had. So fortunately it's not like, it wasn't like a huge, um, awakening to like realize how not completely satisfied I was, but it also was, um, yeah, just revelatory to be like, uh, there are more, there's more to life than people thinking that you're good at what you do. And that's, I, I don't think anybody
1: on earth would really argue with that in theory. But I, I was just thinking about this as you said it. Uh, the a Documentary filmmaker, do you know Penny Lane? We were both in the Valley at the same time.
0: I, that sounds so familiar. I don't, I don't but
1: know. It's a, it's a song.
0: Yeah, besides that, as a person.
1: (laughs) But she said, she talked about uh, getting awards and accolades and how it's just so important. And she didn't say that getting the awards or accolades made her realize this, but that it, and I teach this to people, I've lived, tried to live by it. The idea that the process is is so important, is more important than this very short period of time when you have a product that people see and say yay about. Um, But part of the trick is, and why fame is such a slippery little thing that we can't just dismiss, is that until until you make a product that people say yay about, it's hard to realize that sometimes
0: yeah and it's even hard to realize it after you have done it, and then it starts to sort of fade in your memory a little bit, you know um, like it and and there must be something to sort of like the mechanics of human ambition to that that like we need we need something to drive towards that will allow us to endure the like frustration and anxiety of the creative process, right? <laughs> and so so maybe it's almost it's almost like um, you know, childbirth is incredibly painful i hear i haven't had a child myself but um and that like their women don't sort of written often don't retain like as specific a memory of that and there must be an evolutionary reason for that so that they like uh are able to like get pregnant and give birth again and not be like terrified of it um it's sort of the reverse of that it's almost like we don't we don't remember that like actually the the tremendous success is not as uniformly fulfilling um, so that we sort of will have at it again after we've done something that people think is good.
1: So speaking of having it more than once, have you had (laughs) to give accept had to, have you been lucky enough to give acceptance speeches
0: for these awards? Yeah. Yep. Twice. And how, how was that? Um... Like a blur that it's a good thing that I'd written it down ahead of time, so that I have a document that lets me know approximately what I said because otherwise it's like you are not retaining any memory of yourself in that space um, yeah, and i I've gotten i I, <laughs> I I've gotten a little superstitious about this, like i the last time, the last James Beard Award, I like didn't allow myself to write what I would say if I won until like I was on the plane to New York City for the award ceremony, because I didn't want to jinx myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the whole the whole like them saying your name and you walking up and lots of people clapping and especially if you're wearing heels and you don't often wear heels, like imagining yourself like f- like flying into the crowd on the steps by mistake um, and avoiding doing that. It's all, it just sort of like, you, it's almost like your brain can't order it as it's happening.
1: That's why we we see even the most famous actors and actresses in the world be in a blur when they're up there.
0: Totally. Yeah. And say really hilariously. Yeah.
1: Inappropri- ridiculous yeah. Thing. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: The better ones actually. <laughs> Let me just say one other thing about that. that. So, so when State of the Reunion, which is the NPR show that I produced before starting Gravy, when State of the Reunion won a won a Peabody Award, um, we all the whole like production team got to get up on stage. Um, but my boss. The host of the show, Al Letson, was the one giving the speech. That was kind of the best because, like, I didn't have to talk. I just had to stand there. So you got to, like, stand up in front of everybody and have them, like, clap at you. And, you know, you didn't have to worry about making a fool of yourself. You just had to not fall down. That's a
1: great point and great advice to people who are, you know, who work with Steven Spielberg, who come up, you know, for Best <laughs> right. best, best Picture because they can just be back there and be like, hi.
0: Like, woohoo! Yeah. <laughs>
1: Why did State of the Union have to end State of the reunion uh, sorry
0: state of the reunion state of the reunion ended mostly because al and was tired of fighting to mm-hmm. fund keep the funding coming in i mean it it was a grant funded show, and um you know he was trying to He was trying to be both, like, the creative head of the show and the business head of the show, and it was just exhausting. So after six years, I think, six years of annually it being this question mark and, like, all of us feeling like our lives were hanging in the balance, um, it just, he felt like you had to lay down the battle. And ironically, that was, like, happening as that like, I think that we found out about the Peabody award, like the same month that we decided it was ending. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I was just listening uh, to the last episode and the, you could hear it in his voice. Uh,
0: oh my God. I can't listen to that episode. It makes me cry, <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: In general and in specific thinking of anyone who has lived or, or, or lives uh, or just a general um audience. Who who's your who do you ima- who do you uh mm, eh, who's your dream ideal audience? Who do you imagine out there when you make a piece that you're making it for?
0: Ooh. Wow, that's a good question. Um <laughs> I mean
1: or d- or don't you, you yeah. know.
0: I guess anybody. <laughs> I mean, I, that feels like a cop-out answer, but honestly, I want to make a thing that anybody could be drawn into you know when I'm like recording I'm trying to think of not talking to like a large number of people I'm trying to think of like a person or um I actually have a little stuffed bear that was my grandmother's in in the closet where I often record my tracks and so sometimes I'm talking to the bear (laughs) um it's kind of cute uh, but, but I find it that with radio, it's like, you know, people are not, not usually listening, like, in large crowds of people. They're, like, listening with their headphones or they're listening in their car. And, like, it works best if it feels like somebody is talking to you as one person. So m- my hope is that any one individual would be able to feel s- spoken to.
1: Mm-hmm. Note to self, get stuff bare. Um. Is there any... um? Not, not a listener, but a uh, mentor icon, someone you want to respect your work, who has and or someone who hasn't or can never if they're dead, if they're gone, who you would, you know, who you look up to in, in, in your profession.
0: I mean, there was a moment when gravy was sort of. Um, Maybe it was even This happened a couple of times With State of the Reunion Where uh, Especially with broadcast radio You like put stuff out In the world And often you don't know Who's listening Or like um, Whether anybody I mean you, you You have a sense If anybody is listening When you're doing a show Like State of the Reunion Which at its height Was like on More than 300 NPR affiliates but I remember being at a um, a radio conference, and there there is this pair of women um, radio producers named the Kitchen Sisters.
1: Uh, yeah, um, mm-hmm.
0: who whose work like totally inspired me to make radio documentaries, and I was at a buffet line, and Al, my boss, had met them already and introduced. Them to me, and they're like, Oh, Tina Antolini, we love you, we, we love you, or like, we we love your name, or something like that. They like already knew who I was, and I was like, Oh my god. <laughs> um, and and they actually, um, just to bring that story full circle, the first James Beard Award that Gravy won, they were up for the radio award last night because we 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 won a, like a publication of the year um award that year, and um, they we hung out with them all night and they won and we won and it was awesome. So I have a picture of like myself with the kitchen sisters at the James Beard awards that, uh, if you'd told my like sort of 20, 21 year old self, that would be happening. I I would have not believed it.
1: Well, your 21 year old self would have been like, you didn't aspire to, I don't know, Duran Duran.
0: (laughs) Right. Like what the hell? Who are these ladies? My 21 year old self would have been like, who are these ladies?
1: You know, there's fame and there's acclaim and being acclaimed by people who you respect is, is is, at least for you and for me, it sounds like would be better than celebrity.
0: I mean, I also think that there's, I was thinking about this in advance of our conversation because I think that there's something about like being like public radio famous or... (laughs) uh, like public radio documentary famous, or now I guess podcast famous where it's like, especially because people don't see your face all of the time. So they might know your voice, but they don't know what you look like is that you can sort of occupy, uh, this like niche space of, you know, having people know, quote unquote, know who you are and respect your work, but you don't have to deal with like people stopping you on the street and being like, Oh, you're, um, you know, like, there's like there's a kind of sweet spot there, I think. And I'm not even that public radio famous, but, you know. But like,
1: even someone as public radio famous as, as Ira is unfamiliar to enough people that he can live a life. Yeah. And that, that would be more important to me than any fame in the world is not to be able to walk around in public would be dreadful.
0: No desire for that. Like, absolutely none. Yeah.
1: And the thing is that people who do desire it, I think would think that we're being disingenuous right now.
0: Yeah. No, because there's a hunger. People really do have a hunger for it, right?
1: And, and the people who have a hunger for it, it, it's kind of, how could you not want it is what they would think. They really, 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 you know, and I, I want it. And I, I've in the past year talked to a lot of my, Uh, i work with high school students and i've talked to them about it and it seems like they fall the ones who want to make things like art kind of fall on opposite sides of being deciding they're gonna hate it or deciding that they'd really like it but the, the culture teaches you so much that you're supposed to want it now you know like
0: yeah, and it, uh, while simultaneously like showing us things like reality TV shows, where where, where like you know these pe- people are famous, but sort of exploiting themselves in order to become famous, and it's interesting to me that like fame is still so attractive when like that's what we're shown. But but also maybe I'm just viewing it through my particular like upper middle class white intellectual frame and can't see what other people who see that and want to be on reality TV shows see, Mm -hmm. you know,
1: but people coming from that same frame still want it. And you'll find very rich and or successful people making themselves look ridiculous on these shows, you know, to be on television.
0: Yeah. That's another thing is like, I've had very, very little interest in being on television. I've had a couple of moments of, Like, I actually remember when I was working for the NPR affiliate in Western Mass, um, like, being asked to be, like, help moderate a debate for the mayoral election in Springfield and being on, like, the public television station there. And just, like, watch, like, not being able to watch it, just being, like, so distracted by the awkwardness of my physical self that, like, just no desire to have that be what
1: i do in the world since i've been doing this a few people who who have liked it have asked me about whether i want to do a youtube channel and simply the amount oh my god no i mean if someone were talking to me sure but people i've tried to watch and understand the youtube celebrity phenomena and they looking at me would be a thousand times more horrible to my, to me, to look at me, (laughs) but looking at them is horrible. Talking into a camera on, on, into a computer uh, camera, this unproduced actual self. It's very, in a way it's very real, but it's, 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 yeah, I don't want to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, I also think in terms of, like, not just having being confronted with my physical self on camera, but I think that the beauty of audio is that with, like, not very expensive equipment um, or technological know-how, you can make something that sounds um, really good. And to make something that looks really good uh, in video, I think, takes a lot more time and skill. And um, it's not that I'm, like cowed by the idea of spending time and skill on something it's just I'd rather be focused on like the story than like all of the trappings to make it happen
1: when you were talking about um uh state of the reunion and being grant funded I just sighed grant funded in America (laughs) there there's a, a sad yeah a sad series we could make
0: yeah I mean, I also, the the show, State of the Reunion was born out of um, this cool thing that they've only done once, and I kind of wish they would do it again, though maybe that ship has sailed. It was called the Public Radio Talent Quest, and it was basically like an American idol for public radio hosts. Um, so Al Letzen, my, my boss at State of the Reunion, had um, never worked in radio. He was a playwright and a performance poet and entered this contest on a whim and ended up being one of the winners. Another one of the winners was Glenn Washington of Snap Judgment, that show. Um, and so that all happened, like, in 2007. And then the show was greenlighted, and the 2008 financial meltdown happened. And, like, everybody's idea of how to fund a show like State of the Reunion, like, completely changed. So to some degree there had been all of this hope for how the show could sustain itself that then, you know, the financial crisis just sort of completely changed that picture.
1: Here's something about a a category of people who never get, uh, attention. Who did the gravy logo? It's fantastic.
0: Oh, um, the gravy logo was actually done by the person who designs, uh, Print Gravy, so so Gravy has a um, a sister publication that's a quarterly journal that uh, existed before the podcast did. And when we were deciding to create the podcast, my colleague, who's the editor of Print Gravy, Print Gravy, um, whose name is Sarah Camp Milam. She, uh, got the guy who normally designs and does the layout for Print Gravy to work up a gravy boat with some headphones (laughs) on. (laughs) Well,
1: it's really, uh, in, in the world of a thousand little podcast icons, it's really great. It stands out. It's, it, it, it represents the show really well.
0: Yeah. I was really thrilled with it when they came up with it. So, but I can't take credit at all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. You can give credit. Um, so earlier you were, you were talking about when you were thinking about this uh, about coming talking to me. not you didn't actually go anywhere about talking to me. Uh, are there any things that came up that uh I haven't bugged you about in, in, in so far?
0: No, I mean, I remember. <laughs> The, the, there's only one other thing that I haven't... I mean, mostly I was thinking about the sort of weirdness of Public Radio Famous, but maybe this is like uh, an anecdote within, under the umbrella of, of that, which is that when I was working for the NPR affiliate in Western Mass and... We haven't said their name yet. Oh, yeah. WFCR. Hello, FCR. Now now, now New England Public Radio, which they were, they were not calling themselves that when I was working there. But I hosted All Things Considered for a good chunk of the time that I worked there um, as the local host. So basically what that involves is like you do the local newscasts and the weather and you're on the air from like 4 p.m. till 6.30 every weekday afternoon, um, sort of as the local glue between the national and international news. And during part of that time, I was also like single and dating in um, the Pioneer Valley. And it was so weird to like Cause you would meet people and like, sometimes, you know, you wouldn't immediately talk about what you did or I'm just thinking of this one particular instance where like on the second or third date, uh, the guy I was dating revealed that he like listened to me for two and a half hours every day. It was so (laughs) creeped me out. It was like, ah, like that's so weird. The second
1: or third and last date.
0: (laughs) It might've been. It might have been, I mean, it's not like it, in some ways it was flattering and it was also like that felt, Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it felt like um, I, I couldn't reciprocate and, you know, and so it felt like kind of being up in my business in a, in a weird way.
1: A fine line between flattery and creeperdom.
0: So that that story is what what I thought of when I was thinking about coming to talk to you, Jamie. That's funny.
1: Right. You were famous <laughs> to that person. And and you didn't like that you couldn't do the same.
0: I didn't like that I couldn't do the same. And I also didn't like that I couldn't control it. I couldn't be like, no, you can't listen and turn it off for them, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I don't think you should become more famous. <laughs> I don't think you'll like it. It sounds like you're right where you should be.
0: Yeah, really. I really don't. I don't think so either. (laughs) I think marginal fame is as as much as I want.
1: (laughs) Let me see. Let me look at my little list. Beard Awards, interviewing others, singing dreams, goals, inspiration. Interviewing others. But have you ever had to back people off feeling like they are having their moment?
0: yeah I let them have their moment because i'm I'm not recording I'm not interviewing anybody live I mean, yeah, so I can you know and you know mostly the kinds of stories that I tend to do it doesn't attract that kind of person I mean maybe if I was working in television interviewing that would be more of a liability, but I also you know it's rare that I interview somebody for less than an hour, like I'm usually even for us, even if, if they're not like a main character in a story I end up talking to them for a while so if they have the impulse towards like that kind of salesmanship of themselves it usually wears off after a certain period of time That's good.
1: You wear them down. You wear them down to the regular, to the real person.
0: I, that's the hope and you know who knows what the reality is. Is
1: that by design? Is that what you spend or is spending an hour a standard
0: I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily standard, but I'd say that like usually I'm thinking about an interview in terms of like its own arc of starting off in a place that um, feels comfortable and like can help somebody get get comfortable, especially with the microphone being in their faces, yeah. which as you experienced is a little weird. And that usually by, you know, 20, 20 minutes or so in, people have like gotten a little more used to it and loosened up and... So I wouldn't say it's like strategic, like I'm waiting them out. I would just say that like there is like a natural arc to a well-planned interview that um, makes people feel more and more comfortable as it goes along. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to come out of the gate with like your most emotional, (laughs) roughest question because like they won't be prepped for
1: it. You mean like say, why were you nervous about coming on this show? Yeah.
0: (laughs) That was not a critique of your interviewing stuff.
1: No, I know, I know. But I, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I thought about it being a little loaded, but it just seemed like a good place to start.
0: Nah. I mean, so here's the reality is you aren't sticking a mic in my face. I feel like we're just having a Skype conversation. So I'm probably being um, like more uh, or I'm being less guarded than maybe I even should be.
1: <laughs> I am much more comfortable making the show on Skype than live, even though I can. Yeah. When I, I the recordings I've done. I feel like the episodes that work best because I think we're both in our element and figuring out and and comfortable enough to talk.
0: you know, Terry Griss, I've heard uh, actually like prefers to do her interviews where, you know, somebody is like long distance in their own studio uh, that she also likes that's the sort of intimacy of i mean it's it's kind of ironic, right? the intimacy of long distance conversation
1: yeah I have heard in the in the lore, even beyond that that even if someone is at w h y y she doesn't sit with them, and I don't know if it's true, but it kind of makes sense
0: yeah, i mean i can see I, I i get that i i think there is something to like to being Well, it's interesting because I do think there is something to being disembodied and people being able to sort of open up. But I also find that usually when I'm trying to help somebody open up when I'm interviewing them, that like making eye contact with them and showing them how much I'm listening to them and like receiving what they're saying is actually super important. So yeah, so I think it depends on who you're interviewing. That's funny.
1: I think for me, having you knowing that seeing you there listening made it worse for me. (laughs) <laughs> when you were talking to me, I would have been, I think I would have been more at ease. What's, what's coming up in your life and in gravy?
0: So this is, this is a little bit new for me. I've only done one like live storytelling. No, not, not that's not true. I've only done a couple of live storytelling events and um, only one of them actually a story about myself, which speaking of stories about myself, I only, I did like sort of a moth-esque Uh, live storytelling event here in New Orleans this past winter which like was amazing how nervous I was getting up to tell a personal story but this pop-up magazines um, tour that I'm doing with with the story that you're part of it's called pop-up magazine and it is sort of like their idea is like turning a magazine into a live event so it's a bunch of people telling stories and live music and you know sometimes images and um, that is coming up the in November, the beginning of November, I'm going to be part of their tour that goes to California and Chicago. And uh, hopefully I'll be on the New York and Boston portions, too. And that's going to be really different because it's like doing an audio story like I normally do, except standing live in front of thousands of people. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, it might we'll see how it how it feels to be like watched while I'm doing that.
1: Are you going to be playing a story that's recorded and talking about it?
0: I'll be. No, I'll be playing tape. Like, so, for example, when you say things, it'll be your voice recorded from our interview. And then my part, like my narration, I'll be saying live.
1: <laughs> that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be cool. And I also think it's going to make me really anxious. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. I've done a couple of storytelling uh, things. What was the story you told in New Orleans?
0: In here yeah. in New Orleans? It was a story about. It was actually mostly about my dad um, going to Italy when he was a little boy. Uh, th- there's more to it. it involved bats, and pizza. Bats, but, pizza. <laughs> you know, as, as they do.
1: <laughs> well, I'm about to say thanks, and I'm going to edit this part out, but I want to say thanks and then talk to you for a second after we say thanks. <laughs> so, um, thanks, Dina. This, thanks.
0: <laughs> my pleasure you're welcome it's jamie. amazing
1: how artificial i just like totally <laughs> made that become but i really do thank you and i i, I uh, yeah i'm psyched to have your voice and your stories on my
0: show yeah my pleasure
1: uh it's good to talk to you
0: yeah you too jamie take care let me know when this is coming out
1: thanks oh i will yeah okay thanks. cool bye bye You can find Gravy wherever podcasts are podcasted. And you can find more about Tina and her work at tinaantolini.com. Gravy's fantastic logo that I spoke of was designed by Devin Cox a few weeks ago, a week after the election. Anya and I drove to Boston to see that pop-up show, which was really great. If Next time they do a tour, look for Pop-Up Magazine. These are stories that you can't hear anywhere else. They do them live, and then it's over. I also have to admit that I've done a bunch of performing in my life, but hearing Tina repeat my name from the stage five or six times in a minute and a half made my ears burn like just about nothing I can remember. I'll have to see if I can figure out why. For those of you listening, right as this comes out the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I wish you all the best Thanksgiving you can have. I hope you find people to be close to and not to fight with. And that you find things to be thankful for in tough times. For more about 15 minutes, please go to 15 com. That's 15minutes, J A M I E B dot com, Or on Twitter or Instagram at 15 b or on Facebook, or of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey Ed, we're 20 episodes in. Thanks one more time. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.